uh, Warcraft 3 Reforged, for example, the promises were achievable. They just got defunded. So they, I'm 90% sure it was Bobby Kotick who, who did it. But <laughs> within the same month of that, and I think it was 500 more layoffs, or was it 800? Um, that's when Mike Morheim basically announced he was leaving. So mm. seems to yeah. me like a, a little power struggle and company culture clash right there between yeah. what Activision wanted and what Blizzard wanted. Mm. But the, the main thing is that if you promise something, you better deliver it. Hi everyone, I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today we're talking with David Freed. He's a narrative and game designer with over 20 years of experience in the gaming industry, best known for his on Blizzard's Warcraft 3 and Wasteland series. Over the past 20 years, the gaming industry has grown to over $180 billion, surpassing both the movie and music industry combined. David has consulted for over 15 different game developers in this time, and today he's with us today to talk about some various hot topics in the industry. Dave, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk about this kind of stuff, especially the ramifications of the industry that I'm working in. Yeah, and that's that's one of the open things that I've actually enjoyed by far the most. You know, I was one of those lucky people, as I told in the email, that the YouTube algorithm blessed with just recommending your videos out of the blue, especially the ones on the Warcraft Q&A. And those have been quite a fun to watch. And then I watched a lot of your other, you know, game industry ones. And even though I'm not specifically within that industry, it was just fascinating to learn about the things that, you know, I take so much of my free time and, and enjoy uh, that we take for granted to see how it works on the inside. But, you know, just to back it up, because most of you aren't necessarily gamers, I know there'll be, you know, if they are, they would be familiar with Warcraft 3 and your Wasteland games that you've, you know, worked on and appreciated your work in it. Um, but could you just give us a quick rundown of the other projects you've worked on that reflect on your, you know, working experiences in the gaming industry as a whole? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it was uh, my early stuff at Blizzard. Um, like, I actually worked on the, I did the only new campaign mission for StarCraft for the N64, for example. Oh, really? And, um, yeah, and uh, so Infested Stukov is sort of my invention, uh, bringing him back uh, as a Zerg-infested uh, character. Uh, I used to do, uh, from that, I went to the Trigger Map of the Month program. So I worked on a bunch of really cool maps for StarCraft, uh, my favorite one being Deception, which ironically, you know, all of that stuff is now considered part of the canon lore <laughs> for StarCraft, even though I was just, you know, some, some fool who came out of QA. Of course, Warcraft 3, Reign of Chaos, and the Frozen Throne are the two uh, biggest titles I'm known for, in particular, the Calling of Strathholm, which is the turning part, point for Arthas in that campaign. But I did quests for World of Warcraft. Uh, I worked on Oddworld Stranger's Wrath, which is actually one of the most uh, criminally underrated games, I think, in my entire repertoire. <clears throat> um, the, I did a Da Vinci Code uh, game where like, I actually wrote all of the script for, for all the characters and like most of the puzzles and designed most of the levels. It was actually pretty intense for a nine-month project. My lowest rated game, though. Um, I got to work on the Silent Hill franchise on Silent Hill 5. Um, I did some work with my friends at Supervillain that'll never see the light of day. <laughs> and then I touched on a couple games at Ubisoft, one which was canceled and the other one which became I Am Alive. And um, yeah, beyond that, it's like a lot of mobile games that probably no one's really played or heard of. 
I did a stint at uh, a place called Puzzle Nation. I worked on uh, user experience for crossword puzzles and everything. And, you know, and then finally came back to AAA with Wasteland 3. And now I'm dabbling in NFT games, which is one of the most weird ethical <laughs> moral quandaries that I'm, I've dealt with in the game industry. And I'm sort of trying to figure out a way to navigate that space and, and get it to where I think it needs to be. But, you know, that's, that could be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah, you know, it actually, it actually could be. I mean, I'd like to do that sometime in the future. I only recently found out that you were specifically working on NFTs in the moment when I looked at your LinkedIn page to, you know, get some of the facts right for the intro. Um, and that's something that I didn't really expect or didn't really see about. I've only ever seen like memes about it and people reacting to it much. Um, but it's a massive, massive, massive industry. I mean, these are just billions or millions rather of dollars that people spend on virtual items um, that they can then claim unique ownership from. Uh, that's a that's a definition of an NFT. And so, you know, a lot of people that aren't even in the game industry would be really interested in this simply because it's a way to almost make money out of nothing. And there's an interesting, you know, culture around that that is very much worth exploring. It It is, it, but it's also, um, it's new territory for a lot of people. And right now, the big issue that I see is there's a lot of people who are just in it for investing purposes. Hmm. And they're, the people who are making these NFT games are not in it for the long haul. They're in it for a short-term gain. And that's just not how games proliferate. A game proliferates when it has more and more players coming in. And all of, these NF, all of the mindset for these NFT companies is very much limited release, limited number of characters, limited number of assets. And they like it's getting to a point where I don't know how they think they can sustain these games in the long term given that they have uh, gameplay dynamics where you're, let's say that you have a starship, it can be destroyed and lost and they've only limited, it's a limited release of 4,000. What happens when, you know, 3,000 of them are gone? You only have a thousand players left. Like this game is going to die. Like, I just don't understand the, the mindset of some of these companies. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's very much fair, and I think it's it's exactly what you said. People invested in the industry, sorry, in the the investment rather than the you know the gameplay experience, the part where a lot of the games have existed for way longer than people even remotely expected them to be, and still make sales to this day. You know, you just look at the top sellers on Steam, and you just see half these games aren't remotely new. You know, there's the interest still there because it's good design. Um, yeah. If you could describe the similarity and differences uh, between uh, you know, the gaming industry and the way that it's evolved to some of the more mainstream software industries that people could understand, or people that aren't in the gaming industry could understand, like Microsoft um, Office and Facebook, those type of scenarios. What would you describe as the biggest changes in the way that people think uh, between gaming industries and software industries? Uh, it's There's getting a lot of overlap between them. I think both industries have moved towards uh, service style. So mm -hmm. there's the term of, you know, but you have an, a subscription to Microsoft Office, or at least I do. And, um, you know, that's sort of necessary to function in terms of like, you have to have the, you know, Word and all that, and that's that sort of stuff. And you want the latest versions. So you just pay a monthly fee. Games as a service has become more and more commonplace, especially at the larger corporations. So EA and uh, Activision Blizzard and Ubisoft, they all have games as a service. And it sort of started with uh, MMORPGs. So WoW was the first Blizzard game to have a subscription uh, service like that. And the money that they've made from it just absolutely opened everyone's eyes to like, oh yeah, everything should be games as a service. And now it's, now it's everywhere, even in games that it totally doesn't belong in, like, you know, 
Battlefield and Destiny 2. These games should not be games as a service. They should be a released game and then you do expansions and, and you sell the expansions like the old school style. But nope, <laughs> now you've got to pay for the battle pass to get all the really cool stuff and to get access to the content, to get the new weapons earlier. You have to pay a monthly fee. And I think, I don't think that's a good thing. And it's, it's, it's evolved quite weirdly because, I mean, you know, I'm guilty myself, especially I've, I've definitely spent some games as a service money on, on especially stuff like World of Warcraft, for example. I've definitely yeah. spent my fair amount of, of guilt there in terms of, you know, supplying or, or motivating this industry. And yet we've seen over the past few years that players have slowly but steadily become really dissatisfied uh, with this type of model. Um, you, you see a lot of like uh, reviews being completely negative based on the fact that there's microtransactions within a game. And this is not even just, you know, mobile games, which is a very massive industry. We'll talk about that shortly. But this is, you know, PC games, people that pay $60 for a new game. And then there's, you know, microtransactions upon microtransactions. It's interesting to see that when there's a kind of a backlash on it, then it, it there's almost a delay for the mainstream companies or the AAA titles to react to this. And would you be able to say, you know, since you, you made a, both a 2019 and a 2020 a state of the gameplay industry um, videos on your YouTube channel, have you any have you seen any AAA titles that have, you know, maybe adjusted to this type of rhetoric? Have, have, have they stopped doing that? Not really? None of the big companies will. They're not going to stop until they stop making money. I, that's part of the reason that I've called for a boycott of Activision uh, until they oust Kotick. Um, I think until he's gone, this, this just isn't going to change. And all of those IPs that they now own are going to be forever locked in this. Like, unless it, it's going to make billions of dollars, there's no way we're going to make it. So we'll never, never ever see a Warcraft 4 until uh, he's out. So I encourage everyone to uh, <laughs> boycott uh, Activision until he's gone. Um, mm. there, are, there is a response to it, but it's primarily going to come from new studios that are forming um, uh, primarily under the Dreamhaven uh, umbrella, I think, uh, especially in California. So it's, there's like three or four companies that are all ex-Blizzard people who believed in the, you know, we make a good game and people come and buy our game and then we've made money and we can make a new game that we really want to make, like that sort of model. So I think we'll see that with Frost Giant and we'll see that with uh, Secret Door and we'll see that with with all the Dreamhaven uh, companies. Um, and then other than that, I'd say it's indie developers where you're going to primarily uh, see, see that sort of thing. And it's unfortunate that there's not like a, like Dreamhaven is a good example of what the game industry should be doing. It's an umbrella that handles all the business crap and then the studios underneath it get to just make the game and, and worry about that. So I'm hoping that that model will be recreated by another individual who like that that's what valve could be but isn't <laughs> because they they've formed a blob and and the blob is like well we don't need to make any games we're making so much money <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting seeing the development cycles also i recently watched a video i can't remember who it was from it was maybe two clicks phillips i'm not exactly sure but we went through the development cycles of the different games that um, valve has or even hasn't released over the past couple of years and the way in which they kind of mm -hmm you know, at some point in time, try different strategies to development where they said like, okay, every developer can just work on, you know, whatever like they like to work on. And now after a while they realized, okay, that amount of freedom isn't necessarily the best thing. And then they kind of had a project to work on. And one of their more recent releases that was very well critically acclaimed among a few other failures was, you know, Half-Life Alex. Uh, it was a VR game and, and the team really put together to try and produce this product instead of, you know, um, working on a bunch of different ones. And this is kind of interesting because 
you you look at these development cycles and you think, okay, well, that's X amount of people uh, that work at the company that all cost money to employ every day and it's not being released or it's different failures and different stuff. And so there's a lot of costs that people don't really ever, you know, actually see when something is being produced, what it costs in the background, not only in people, but also in technology and stuff like that. And that's one of the main arguments that people use that support games as a service uh, as, as a type of a model for games to work on. This is say, you know, games are simply too, you know, big, too graphically intensive, too, you know, expansive to be able to afford if every person only pays $60 for the game at face value. Is there any truth to the statement? You know, is, is there a lot of hidden costs? Oh yeah, I see the big, a big head check there. I mean, there there are a lot of uh, they're not hidden costs. They, these are all planned for in the in the production pre production stages. Like you know, before you even start on the production phase of a game, you know exactly how much it's going to cost you from year one to the end uh, to to make this game. And no studio operates without that pre production plan. Um, and if they do, they're insane. Um, <clears throat> so. I think it's just a justification for them to charge extra money and because it makes the shareholders money. And like, look at what Activision Blizzard is taking in profits. They don't need all, like, I understand that profit, it's a profit driven industry at some point, but it that's not what Blizzard was founded upon. And that's not where those amazing games and new creations come from. It comes from a place of, of love and wanting to make a game that that you as a developer love, and um, but it's been turned into a profit-driven industry. As soon as profit is the motive, like then you start doing stupid things with the monetization that everyone gets mad about. And like the the year that um, Bobby Kotick laid off 800 people was one of Activision Blizzard's most profitable years. Has nothing to do with hidden costs. It has everything to do with just him wanting to pocket more money for himself. Boycott Bobby Kotick. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it's a really good point that you make, and I think people don't quite understand that. I mean, it's really easy to research as well. If you just, like, I I I actually went um, and read through Bobby Kotick's uh, Wikipedia page, and oh, some of the God. statements that he's made, especially in quarterly reviews, is quite shocking, honestly. And you see these quarterly mm -hmm. reviews for Blizzard Activision, where the monthly active users, which they kind of use as a metric across all Blizzard games to see how active it is, um, but most people also use it as a way of seeing how many subscriptions World of Warcraft has. That's been going down steadily, and yet their revenue keeps increasing. So that's exactly that exploitation cycle that you're now talking about. That's kind of, you know, it's destroying the community and yet they're making more money. So there's definitely a disconnect there in exactly what you've, you've mentioned here. Yeah, because the players who are hooked are going to buy whatever the new thing is. And they're now they're finding ways to monetize the whales. So the, in mm. the game industry, the whales are the people who would spend thousands upon thousands of dollars every month. You, we always joke that it's like some Saudi prince or whatever, but and that may even be the case. Um, but that's what Bobby Kodak wants. He wants to monetize the whales and wow, and thus their profits keep rising and they don't even need to make a new game. So I, I don't even think they will make a new game until like, I'm worried about Diablo 4, to be honest. <laughs> but we'll yeah, see I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of worrying layoffs, especially in that area as well, and people quitting from the development team. I mean, at the end of the day, if you want, you know, a game, there's people that have to set, make the game. It doesn't spawn out of existence, out of nothing. It's people actually have to work on it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I look at my LinkedIn every day, and since I'm only two connections away from literally everyone in the industry at this point, 
I see a constant string of like, today's my last day at Blizzard, today's my last day at Blizzard, always in front of that, <laughs> uh, what is it, Thrall? I think it's Thrall on a wolf statue. Yeah. <sighs> Which has the most uh, ironic moniker at the bottom uh, of, of the statue where it says they, they make games for, what, what exactly the quote, I can't exactly remember, but it's it's direct reason that people are leaving is the reason what's that's written at the bottom of the statue. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't remember because the, that was made after uh, I was long gone. So, <laughs> But um, what I want to talk about is because you've mentioned, especially in a couple of your YouTube videos, that you know, you've had the luxury of being able to um, say no to companies that have you know, a poor planning schedule or that you know, completely abuse the, the developers. Um, you've had that luxury because you've, you've, you've worked really hard and gained the experience to be able to pick the industry that you work next into. This is something we'll explore later on. But what you mentioned with that statement you made in your video is that if a company doesn't, you know, if they crunch or they, if they push the developers too far in the development cycle, then it's due to poor planning. It's not that it's necessary to release a game from that perspective. And it's the same way in which you said now with the budget. It's if they don't have a good budget, that's just poor planning. It doesn't mean it's impossible to do it without, you know, a fixed budget or a fixed development cycle. So that's yeah. something that I also wanted to point out is, you know, why is there this kind of culture within game development specifically, or is it more common than it, than it seems? Uh, I, don't, I don't know how common it is. Um, I would say that um, the sort of crunch culture came from the early origins of most game studios. So <clears throat> the people who now are at the top of these studios, they did have to crunch because back then there wasn't really a support system for things. And they were like, for example, Blizzard itself was founded off of the like credit card of Mike Morheim and like, you know, ridiculous stories like that, um, that, you know, they had to crunch, they had to put in all this extra work. And so they sort of leave that as part of their company culture because, well, I did it. So these guys should have to do it. But Mike Morheim, you know, lives in a mansion. <laughs> I, he's he's a great CEO. He's one of my favorite people in the game industry. But the truth of the matter is that he became incredibly wealthy because of it and sort of lost track of what's happening towards the bottom of his company. And that's a natural sort of thing that happens to, I think, every game studio that started with like a small group of people and then they eventually become the CEOs and they're doing the business stuff. And they're like, well, I had it hard, so you have to have it hard too. It's, but it's not the case. It was, it was like, yeah, you had to struggle, but that doesn't mean you have to inflict that pain and suffering on someone else. It, it doesn't need to be this endless cycle of, of, of crap um, because it's absolutely possible, and I've seen it done many times, to plan it out so that no one has to crunch and that your game is on budget and on schedule. And it's, it's just poor planning otherwise but yeah there's all these mythologies and in, in like bioware has what they call magic time where that's when the real magic happens is when you're crunching till two in the morning and no that's when you start making really stupid mistakes and causing the whole development schedule to go off the 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 chain and, and now you're crunching every day to try and catch back up but because you're crunching you're still making more and more mistakes like they I saw it for what it was when it was happening to me uh, on on Warcraft three. Yeah, I mean, um, like, yeah. No, sorry, there like was, that was a nine month development cycle for for the Frozen Throne, right? Yeah, not, TFT was a nine month cycle, but it actually wasn't that bad because we knew what we were doing and and we sort of scheduled it out. And it was uh, Sam Didier, 
who uh the i don't know what his title is now but he was like the lead artist for for most of their games um but he put his foot down and said we're not adding a new race we're not adding uh this and that because i'm gonna i don't want my artists to have to crunch Mm. and he was absolutely right and so he was the example that i think everyone should follow is like you know how long it takes to do things because you're doing a pre-production schedule and if you see oh god this is a nine-month cycle and these people are going to have to crunch the leader of that team should put their foot down and say no (laughs) Hmm. But no, it's definitely a leader responsibility to be able to measure those correctly and also get the most out of the developers in a positive way. I wanted to, you know, change the pace a bit of just asking you, know, you personally something that, you know, people don't really ask all that much, especially in the Q&As. They, they ask about the work that you've done. But I'm more interested in terms of, you know, not necessarily the work that you've done, but what was the favorite games that you play and the genres that you that you enjoy? You know, are, are, are these... Um, are these entirely different from the stuff that you work on when you develop, or is it stuff that you work on that you love to play as well? Uh, ironically, it's very different from the stuff that I end up working on. Like my favorite games are, uh, so there's Mass Effect, of course. Mass Effect 1 and 2 are my favorite games. Mass Effect 3, not so much because the influence of EA is very apparent in it. Um, but so RPGs, classic RPGs, um, I've actually tried to go back and play a lot of the gold box games, but they're not as exciting now as they were back then. Those are the games where you would have, they would actually support like every, almost every type of playstyle. So if you made a character with low intelligence, you would get options for like stupid answers to questions and things like that, uh, which I always thought was really hilarious. That's a lot of um, writing. Yeah, it's super, like, I have so much respect for those old classic game devs because um, not only were they doing all that writing, but they were also doing the coding typically and, and things like that on those gold box games like it's pretty crazy if you look at the credits it's like five people sometimes <laughs> it's like uh, and now you know it's no less than 30 people there's like what 10 20 quest designers for wow and so forth so mad respect for them yeah. um and i'm also a huge fan of, of adventure games so like professor layton like a puzzle adventure game mm-hmm. um i like uh phoenix Wright, ace attorney a lawyer adventure game. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I've, I've so, seen these. Yeah. As, it's, it's not really um, uh, ones that you common, commonly see, but most people play or have large play accounts. Uh, is it because that their demographic is in a different place, or is it just kind of like more of a niche genre that you enjoy? I think it's a niche genre. Um, there's certainly room for those to grow, I think, like adding more RPG elements to to those sort of things. It's interesting that all the coolest games tend to be blendings of genres. So like, you know, Resident Evil 4 was a really cool uh, progression in in that series. They had taken the horror game to the max and then they just sort of like put in this shooter aspect, but Mm. maintained a certain perspective to keep the horror elements and and it like was amazing. and, yeah, those games know. were really creative. I remember um, I never played them myself. I watched quite a few uh, friends of mine play. And it's like one of the best backseat games to possibly watch and, and play because it's so cinematic to a certain degree. And yet it doesn't it doesn't do the, you know, I've, I've had one person, I'm, I'm also a massive fan of the Mass Effect series. But if one person that says he'd like some gameplay in between his movie, you know, uh, for Mass Effect in terms, of, uh, in terms of how the pacing of the game goes. And a lot of the scenes like in, in Resident Evil, I really appreciated the fact that it's still gameplay, yet it looks cinematic. It kind of looks like you're working through a horror movie in the way that it uses camera angles and perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my brother and sister love to watch me play uh, Resident Evil 4. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, 
I, I love RPGs and I love games with RPG elements and I love adventure games, but I haven't worked on, actually I'm working on an adventure sort of thing now, but it's not, it's for a military contract. <laughs> So that's a little bit well that's very interesting i don't know if you're yeah. able to talk about it so we won't go into it too much um, yeah probably can't say anything about that one but <clears throat> right yeah <laughs> it's interesting are there any kind of like you know merges between um genres that you find is completely untapped because you said that's that's the one of the most interesting ones the one of the most innovative so they take a couple of different game genres or settings and then merge them together i think of those that you've seen and like why hasn't everybody done that yet i think the big one that's actually really confused me is like why has no one uh, done with adventure games what they've done with like RPGs. So for example, take like a tactics uh, uh, RPG game. So Final Fantasy Tactics is one of my favorite games and I'm definitely trying to find a place to, to um, make one of those. But between the, the battle maps, there could be a whole on full on adventure game where you're like solving a mystery or finding these things or talking to people. And like, just no one does that. Like, even though they have all the pieces in place already, because if you play any of those like tactics adventure games, they've got the characters, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they're talking and stuff, but it's always like a fixed linear story where you make no choices, add some choices in there, add some dialogue options. Like why not? But no one's really done that yet that I've seen. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it really is one of those um, narrative designs that you could definitely split off into different scenarios. Cause it's, it's not, for example, I mean, if, if you look at something like Mass Effect, every different narrative uh, example that you use will require the story to go in a different 3D direction that you have to design a lot of stuff for. Um, so that makes it incredibly complex the second you branch that out. Whereas mm -hmm. adventure games, they definitely have that capacity. That, that's, that's a really good point. I've never actually thought about that. It was a really good idea. I mean, you should yeah, <laughs> make your own. I, well, I might. Um, the, the closest I've seen or something that I really, really enjoyed recently was Disco Elysium. Mm, and yeah. if yeah anyone who hasn't played that you have to play disco elysium because it's basically the perfect sort of like advancement of the adventure game but and there's like rpg elements but it's not quite as far along as like you know like a tactics rpg game or something that i'd like to see there where there's actual battles and things like that mm. but it's close um, real close to pivot to a different but a uh, different uh discussion which you almost started earlier uh the one about the phone gaming or the console gaming market uh we know for a fact that i think the phone gaming market is about more than 50 percent i think it's more than 50 percent uh, of the gaming industry in terms of revenue now um yeah. and it's just you know it's it's so massive that a lot of people disregard it. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, there's, there's games on phones, um, but you I mean you can just play it, especially in the gaming industry. And yet the people that do mobile gaming, they know how big it is, and they're almost completely unaware of PC gaming and how big that is. So there's, there's this divide in demographics and understanding. And some people put it, you know, geographics, they say it's, you know, Asia is very much more, you know, mobile accessed because they're able to more easily be able to able, afford phones that can play games, whereas in the Western era, people are more able to afford consoles. You know, is that is that the main reason for the split, or is there a culture thing that's different? And like, are there any big names that are trying to expand in the Western market? Uh, all of China is trying to expand into the Western market. You're going to see a flood of games from China real soon because China shut down uh, releases of new games yeah. in China. Mm. So expect that, um, and you'll see them on the mobile store first. Uh, I'm working on um, a couple that will probably come into the market uh i'm only doing story stuff though i'm not actually doing any of the gameplay uh and unfortunately china's market is flooded with cloners effectively mm -hmm. 
where you know even the big companies are basically copying AFK Arena or Hero Wars or other successful mobile games and just pasting their stuff on top of it. But you know, I'm, I'm writing a story for one, so we'll see if that <laughs> if that can fix the problem there. Probably not, but we'll see. <clears throat> and but then, adventure games would be fantastic for mobile, wouldn't it? They are. Yeah, there's a, there's several that I highly recommend. Like uh, Professor Layton made the jump to mobile and has exclusively mobile games. I don't like the way that they're selling them necessarily, where they like, you know, here's here's a couple chapters, now buy the whole game. Um, mm. Oh, it's not the whole game, it's just another chapter. Episodic. <laughs> yeah, not a big fan of that. Just give me the whole game or or tell me up front, I'll pay the $9.99 or whatever, I don't care. And uh, I think the best model is to have two versions, the demo version and then just buy the, real, the full version, but they need to transfer the save um, so that you don't mm. lose the, the progress. Yeah, no, that's a big part. Yeah, people people are invested, especially in a story that the way that the choices that I've made, especially you have to make those choices again, it just doesn't feel remotely the same way with the same level of motivation. Yeah, it gets it, it's really annoying. So they have to be careful when they do that. So I mean, maybe they've found the best model. Um, but I, I think, like, if I see a Professor Layton game, and you know, even if it's nine ninety nine, yeah, sure, I'll buy that. Um, uh, yeah, in terms of. Yeah, why aren't there more adventure games? I guess there's a bunch of like romance story stuff. Yeah. yeah. And dating um, sims. Dating sims, yeah. Those are the the ones I see a lot of. But also, you know, there's like Supercell who is basically oh, yeah. innovating in a bunch of different genres. So they've like remastered RTSs for mobile and now they've done um like a version of battle chess that is actually way more interesting than <laughs> than auto auto chess yeah. i said battle chess auto chess mm. um and yeah they're doing really good stuff so i, I always look to super soul games first whenever they release a new game i'm playing it uh in whatever country <laughs> they've released it in yeah. just to see if i can uh, garner any interesting stuff there the only problem with them is that they have the same model of monetization for everything which is effectively yeah. pay to win yeah. And that's super infuriating, especially when you get, um, there's a point in every Super Soul game where I start running up against opponents and I'm mm. realizing I'm not losing because they are out, you know, doing better tactics or anything. I'm losing purely because their units are higher level than mine. And then I just kind of quit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and I hope that kind of thing gets more common to a point where people don't enjoy it anymore or don't support it anymore. But I feel like that's perhaps split because most people that play uh, mobile games, especially in the Western scene, uh, are younger kids, uh, unsupervised kids mostly. And to them, the money isn't all that much of a factor. So perhaps, you know, the money determination as to how people make games doesn't work in that scenario. Or is that is that not a well, uh, a fair statement to make? I mean, it's definitely an ethical quandary for like, <laughs> if a kid is playing a game and like they've got it on their parents' phone, it's going to have access to the, um, you know, the credit card. That's a particularly a problem on like iPhone and things like that. But they are doing better with like uh, face identification. So like, even mm -hmm. if the kid does get in there, they, it's not going to hopefully mm -hmm. identify the kid as the parent unless they're like a clone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, that's a real uh, worry <laughs> maybe soon maybe in the future huh? yeah the yeah. the main thing is that um these games need to be more ethically monetized in my opinion and i think that there should be for example for these supercell games i wouldn't if there was like a hey pay 30 dollars and we'll give you the top tier units like buy the set okay 
that's $30. They never would have gotten out of me otherwise, but no, they need to monetize for whales because they want infinite money. And that's, I think, gross. Is, is that one of the reasons why there's such a split between, um, you know, especially PC gamers and, and mobile gamers? Because I mean, there's, there's that infamous line when they announced um, uh, Diablo Immortal uh, at BlizzCon, where they just ask, you know, don't you guys have phones? So you know, you're able to play this game, which, you know, don't be wrong, I was also really tilted at that, that statement, but it is a valid question. It's like you have a phone, so you could theoretically enjoy this game. It, it's not that you don't have access to it. And yet people still obviously negatively reacted because they were expecting something different. Um, is that, you know, the entire reason or is there something else behind it? No, it's entirely a player expectation. I, I, I always harp this like in design lessons and things like that. It's like, if you tell the player you're going to do something, you better do it. It's like Chekhov's gun, you know, if you show the gun in the first act, it better by act three have been used in, to, to shoot someone or something. But the, the, pro, the, the, in the cascade of disasters for the announcement of Diablo Immortal, um, number one, it could have been easily fixed and all it would have taken was do the Diablo 4 uh, teaser trailer first and then do, and by the way, while you're waiting, here's Diablo Immortal. 100% everyone would have been like, yay, okay, you know, I don't like mobile games, but uh, Diablo 4 is coming and in the meantime, I get to play this and get, you know, like back into the Diablo spirit would have been 100% success because I, I know this because I saw Bethesda do it. <laughs> Fallout yes. 4 is coming. Here's a little Fallout mobile game in the meantime. Mm. Genius. So the solution was already there and they just totally effed up. Um, but it becomes from like this archaic uh, thing that Blizzard had, which was like, you never announce something until it's like really close to being, mm. you know, deliverable or at least showable in some form. And Diablo 4 was just a far way off. Maybe they weren't even planning a Diablo 4. I don't know exactly what was going on eternally. But but they just don't announce things until they're close to being ready. And as a result, Diablo Immortal was much closer to being ready. Um, but as a result of the reaction, now it's been pushed back, what, two years, yeah. I think? No. And, uh, and it's no longer uh, what was obviously a skin swap on another yeah. game. Yeah. So... Uh. the the crowd was right and they won <laughs> yeah now that's a really important point you've talked to this uh talked about this in a couple of your youtube videos there's the expectations that are being set and the reactions that people get afterwards shouldn't really be that surprising based on what you've said and i mean we've seen a couple of examples um especially in uh, you know the past i'd say about five years or so of people that make a lot of promises and they release and then gets disappointing. I mean, there's No Man's Sky, there's Cyberpunk, you know, there's all those different ones. And people mostly say, okay, you've built up the hype train, right? So you set up yeah. yourself for disappointment with the hype train. Um, and that's the reason because when the game came out, people's expectations were so ridiculously above uh, what was, you know, at least in terms of uh, Battlefield's recent, um, you know, words that they've mentioned of people being disappointed at 2042 is, is that they've got unreasonable and unbearable expectations that have been set. It's like, well, maybe some of the responsibility is on that hype train. Would you describe the hype train itself as something that is purely marketing? Uh, or is that something that, you know, if you're a game developer, you aspire to make such a cool game, but it's not really practical within time frame that's possible? Never promise something that you can't 100% deliver. That's that's the thing. And, and I tell you uh, that for... Uh, Warcraft 3 Reforged, for example, the promises were achievable. They just got defunded. So they, I'm 90% sure it was Bobby Kotick who, who did it, 
but <laughs> within the same month of that, and I think it was 500 more layoffs, or was it 800? Um, that's when Mike Morheim basically announced he was leaving. So mm. seems to yeah. me like a, a little power struggle and company culture clash right there between yeah. what Activision wanted and what Blizzard wanted. But the, the main thing is that if you promise something, you better deliver it. And that's why people like Peter Molyneux have been ousted from the industry is that they keep over-promising and under-delivering. And yep. there's only a certain amount of acceptance there. And even though the Fable games are really good, they didn't exactly hit the expectations and thus they probably got reduced sales. So if you want to, if you under-promise and then over-deliver, the hype train as you release is much higher. You don't want the hype train coming in before, especially long before you've released. And that was the problem with Cyberpunk 2077, where they promised the world and then delivered <laughs> kind of an empty shell. And even though it was still a really good game and I really enjoyed it because it was definitely up my alley. It's like super RPG Cyberpunk being a setting that I really loved as a child. Um, like it just didn't, like it had less interaction with the NPCs than than any you know skyrim <laughs> like if you can't beat skyrim what are you doing <laughs> otherwise they'll just re-release it in another version and then people play that rather than your game I, for example didn't they just do that i think they just did yeah they did <laughs> yeah there's an anniversary edition now so it's yeah it's oh they're milking that cow properly it's, it's kind of interesting to see these industry darlings kind of really fall from um uh, fall from their pedestal based on you know promises that they've made and not delivered on uh, we know you know bethesda and and, and cd project red and those are all are definitely uh, guilty of that. Um, I also want to ask, because you mentioned in your um, 2020 state of the AAA title um, game industry, that indie games such as, you know, Hades have this capacity to surpass AAA titles, uh, even, you know, in something as, as big as revenues, uh, without, you know, remotely the amount of marketing and, and industry that they have, hype capability that they're able to generate. Um, you know, what percentage of indie games are able to reach us though that's that's kind of like winning the lottery though for indie games isn't it because I mean, the industry is really really competitive so is there a way into which you know these indie games that are really actually innovating in the ways that we'd like to see triple a titles innovate is there a way for them to be able to you know get a higher probability of success yeah i mean i think i presented the solution in that same video which is to do the early access i think early access is a really strong way to garner an audience and then that audience will sort of slowly build the hype train um, for the promise of a game. And that's what Hades really had in spades was it was the promise of what it would be delivered. Because if you played it in that early access phase, it wasn't a complete game. So if they had said, oh, we're going to have this epic, huge storyline and like all this stuff, you would have played it with that expectation. And then it would have failed your expectations. Whereas with the early access, they're like, this is kind of what we've got now try it out, let's see what's going right, what's going wrong. And then they built on that. And that's mm. the smart way to do it. It really is about player expectation and like getting them on board with like the concept and then them slowly building this train to the release date uh, of hype. <laughs> I mean, that's actually, now you mentioned it, uh, that's uh, something that uh, Baldur's Gate 3 did pretty well because I mean, the expectation mm. was that was over the moon after they released that uh, cinematic teaser. Um, yeah. and because it had such a big history and now it's been an early access and people know what the game is about. They know what to expect and know what's being worked on. Yeah. I, I, I'm really looking forward to that game, but I'm not going to play it till it's released. <laughs> but see, no, that's, that's actually a good point because that's something that I also, um, recently, more recently have done. I mean, I'm a, 
I'm a big supporter of certain AAA titles, oh, sorry, uh, early access titles. So um, you know, Subnautica, before that came out, I just absolutely loved the idea of it uh, and really enjoyed it. And then there was a couple of problems with it. And I watched a, um, a video essay on this that people kind of, they kind of went like, nah, it's fine. It's an early exit game. It'll be fixed by the time it's released. It'll be fixed by the time it's released. And then the devs work on other stuff that they're obviously, you know, more passionate about and definitely contributes to the, um, you know, the success of the game. But some of the more basic stuff, like certain bugs and certain ways that, that, that the game plays, which wasn't fun, they never worked on even uh, up to the point of release because it just wasn't a high of a priority. People were more willing to kind of dismiss it. Um, this is kind of the give and the take of early access. And because of that, at least in my own very own limited experience. That's one of the reasons why I don't really play early access games anymore. It's like, I'll, I'll wait until it's released. Um, so is there a balance there? Is there a changing culture? Or is that, do you feel like that balance is, is you know pretty good at the moment? It, it's really up to the individual companies. In the case of Subnautica, it was them ignoring their audience's own observations and basically just doing what they wanted, which is fine, <laughs> but leaves those problems in that are going to hinder the experience for others so for example i haven't played the game because i kind of know what you're talking about and uh that sort of grind just doesn't uh appeal to me even if the game itself is like really exciting and cool and everyone thinks it's super innovative and stuff it's just not my type of game at that point but <clears throat> it, it really is about listening to your players not necessarily doing what they tell you to do but listening when there's a problem and being attentive to that problem. And that's what early access provides, provides that opportunity to make those changes and, and fixes. And, but that's up to the, <laughs> the studio doesn't listen. I don't know what they're doing. Like yeah. Hades was really good at listening to their players, like really, really good. And it shows, I think that is probably one of the most well done polished games of the last five, maybe even 10 years. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, they're getting awards. Was it a Hugo award? Um, um, and that, well, they won Steam Game of the Year um, in the past uh, month or so. So, I mean, that, that alone is pretty high up in its, in its rankings. I want to say it's the first game ever in history to win a Hugo Award, but let me, <laughs> I have to look at it. I'm not exactly familiar with the Hugo Award. Is it, uh, is it not for games, games usually? Is it made for other pieces? It's, I, don't, I think it's the first game in history to win one. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, first video game to win a Hugo Award. Okay. which is huge. And so it's being recognized, not just like, I think games have, have become such a big industry now that, um, you know, it's breached into all these other places where people would normally ignore it. Um, and so, you know, that's exciting stuff. So it, it, it's even being recognized by people who normally would never recognize the industry as a whole. They've got the foot in the door now for the game industry. And now it's possible to win a Hugo award, yeah, <laughs> which is, yeah. I think, cool. And I mean, that's insane. I mean, and I remember playing through Hades, um, a couple of my friends played much more than I did. Um, just a simple feel of the game, the way it was designed for new players, because they didn't, they didn't play it before when it was, um, before it was released. And in that way, it's just simply, you know, they, they were able to appreciate the, the, the differences that the, the game company made, the improvements that they made uh, through the development process as completely new players as somebody who didn't see this stuff beforehand. And that's just, that's just a problem that they'll never know. They'll never know of those bugs of the, the gameplay that they had an issue with because they enjoyed it in its complete form. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask because, you know, we have a couple of early access titles, which somehow have been in early access for quite a while. And then they just got 
immense you know support and hype and success in a very short amount of time the examples that i'm thinking of specifically is valheim and among us i um, mean both of these games were in development for a couple of years before they um completely peaked i don't want to say they finally peaked but they completely peaked and both of those had extremely small teams that worked on them so when you know the the, the when the masses came um, and they wanted to be able to support the masses and, and look at the problems that they've mentioned, they didn't have the development capacity to be able to solve those problems quickly so that people stayed for the you know promise of increase of features. What recommendations would you be in that scenario? Is it to just immediately explode the team? Because I'm assuming that destroys culture a bit, so that's not the ideal. Or is it to you know manage expectations through constant communication? Uh, yeah, manage expectations through constant communication, absolutely. It's, it's the... What is it? The turtle in the hair? <laughs> oh, yes. Mm. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. Like Valheim is, I think, still developing and, and adding on stuff. And, and I think it is in, on track to basically displace Minecraft as the, the next like builder game that people mm. just like, oh, yeah, I had a really good time in Valheim like a while ago. I think I'm going to go back and like build a, a fortress or something. And then they come back and there's all these new features and they're like, oh my God, it's like a totally different game. And then the hype train slowly builds and builds and builds just like it did for minecraft mm. like people don't remember when minecraft was like it wasn't even an alpha but you could like play the game and it was still super enjoyable so you'd talk about like this it's like legos digital legos and they're like why doesn't lego do that which you know now they did but it's not yeah. the same <laughs> no 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 minecraft really you know they took the cake in that scenario and it's, and it's an idea that initially when i saw minecraft years ago i was like Damn, this is awesome. Why has nobody thought of that? A lot of people did, but Minecraft did the they did it right the first time in terms of the expectation in the sandbox. And I think maybe it was a conglomeration of tech also reached the same point of maturity that was possible. Or yeah, well, I mean, it originally uh, it's basically from Infiniminer, which is an unknown indie um, that he basically took that and then built sort of an RPG uh, layer over top of it and just it worked out really well but like if you played in those early days there was no tutorials or anything like you had no idea what you're doing you just had to kind of figure out to punch wood and then like turn it into you know planks it's like kind of it's kind of ridiculous by modern standards because every game is so handholdy and like now you do this now you do that and i think at that time people had gotten tired of that sort of paradigm of like hand holding the player and dragging them along and telling them what to do minecraft came out of the perfect time to sort of start this slow hype train build until literally everyone has played it yeah no it's definitely i, I, I probably say it's the most probably the most perfect game at this point in time i'm sure there's statistics about it but i'm not exactly sure um just it's pure accessibility at the same time it's um you know freedom that it gave, gave people it's just a com ideal combination um i want to talk about as, as a last point you know i've i've obviously watched a lot of your youtube videos so people by all means, go and check out Designer Dave on YouTube. He gives really, really good insights about the industry that most of us love and spend a lot of time in. I and try. based on the reading the YouTube comments from those, mm -hmm. it's quite clear that not only have people enjoyed your perspectives, a lot of people have gone like, I really want to get into this industry. I really want to work in this scenario. And that's kind of an interesting place because um, Donald, uh, the producer of the show, he's also um, worked on you know some 3D modeling and trying to design his own game. And it's it's progressed so much in the past couple of years, uh, with the availability of tools and, and engines that are available for people to work with, and you know the immense amount of YouTube tutorials to learn stuff, that is kind of now more accessible than ever. Um, yep. And when there's so much options, people kind of don't know what to do next. They're not going to have that. That's not that nice clear path to for it. 
So what would be your recommendation for the experience to just be the best way? Is it is to, to join a company? You know, is it to make your own game, dabble with it? it? It really depends on the individual. And because there's so many options, like it, I would change what I tell any individual. Like if you already have, like, let's say you're a graphics artist, then getting a job in the game industry would be the good entry point for that because you've already got a skill set that they need. And then you can transition uh, within the studio or at least talk to the people who you would want to, like, let's say you wanted to become a level designer from a, from a graphics artist, that's possible, plausible um, once you've entered the game studio. Um, the If you've got no skills whatsoever, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say because no one's unskilled. I'm just saying, like, if you don't have a marketable skill, going into quality assurance is the best way to start learning what game development is all about. Because in quality assurance, you're hands-on with the user experience and you're basically feeling what a, what makes for a good game and what makes for a bad game. And that's honestly mm -hmm. how I sort of dabbled my foot into initial game design. And then while I was in QA, I learned the map editor. So maybe mm -hmm. work at a QA for a game that has a map editor if you, if you have the option. Mm -hmm. And, um, but if you have the time and the ability and you know you can live in your mom's basement or whatever <laughs> go ahead and learn a tool like unreal or, or unity or let's say you want to make an adventure game learn inkle or inky that's free uh, and it's just a scripting language to make an adventure game and, and there's like just a plethora of tools so if you just google like i want to make this type of game i bet you you can find a tool specifically made for that learn it and be able to release something maybe to the mobile store, uh, the Google Play Store or, or iTunes. Um, it's, there's just so many paths now that, that it's almost like you can tailor your own uh, <laughs> way to the, into the game industry. Um, but I don't necessarily recommend going to the big studios because um, these days there's a lot you could potentially learn from them, but it really depends upon whom you're surrounded by and what the overall prevailing culture of the studio is. So <clears throat> you, you don't want the luck of the draw in that situation. Whereas at a small startup that, you know, just has a few QA people, you're going to learn a lot more from the development team because you're, they, they work hand in hand. And, and that was, that used to be like Blizzard's like secret <laughs> was that the QA was so close to the development of the game and giving their opinions. And, and because everyone at Blizzard was hired on the premise that they love games, um, that feedback was quite effective and, and allowed them to, you know, kill some games that were going to be failures and improve games that were going to be successes. And QA is also a lot of fun because I mean it, it doesn't necessarily require prior experience in the industry itself. Uh, as somebody just you know, if you love playing games, then you're going to love playing games for money. I mean, it's quite as simple as that, really. And in this well, scenario, you get to know the industry about it, right? I don't want to. You know, every QA department is different. Um, <laughs> there are some that are literally just burn down charts, and you're sitting there all day. You know moving a character off a cliff at different angles and stuff like that. So, you know, it depends on the QA department. The Blizzard's QA department was uh, amazing in that, yeah, you were, there were like charts and burn down things and you have to do certain meticulous things, but also there was a lot of room to like, let's experiment, you know, play the game in any way you want and try to find problems that way. And that was actually one of the areas that I excelled in is that I was able to find crazy bugs because of, uh, I don't know, I, you know how some people 
electronic devices just fail around them. Mm-hmm. I have something similar with games. <laughs> where they just You're a bug them. magnet, pretty much. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've actually seen a couple of those, you know, it's, I feel like people are so incredibly creative, especially when, when it comes to, you know, finding exploits, there's just so many ways. I mean, just looking at the speedrunning industry, what people find to be able to complete any percentages is just like, that's the type of stuff that you need in QA. Um, oh, yeah. And yet stuff like um, I, I saw in, in for Battlefield 5, I think it was Battle, either Battlefield 1 or Battlefield 5, irritating naming convention, but you know, one of those two that um, they developed, DICE developed an uh, AI to run through the levels to be able to do the burn down chart type of stuff. You know, they, they build bots mm-hmm. that's able to see where all the bugs are that break the stuff. Um, but then they kind of, because, you know, as you've mentioned, it's, it's for profit and QAs cost money. Uh, they kind of started to use those as a way of analyzing quality of their games um, through iterative design. So they just completely throw, 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 throw at it. If it was broken, they rebuilt it again. And now they've recently, you know, added those bots into the game for people to play with. And I don't know if they're exactly the same bots, but they're terrible to play with. <laughs> like it's, it is not fun at all. So it's not, it's not, hasn't, doesn't have the same creativity that people do. So do you see there as a way for, you know, QAs to be the part that people's creativity could be utilized and then air could be used to do the burn down shots? Is that something realistic or it's not something if you've explored? No, it's definitely, it's something that we've always explored in QA. We would always hire scripters and, and people who could code to make tools that would like run the game. So like mm-hmm. there's a tool that was like called the soak test that you would just start it and it would just build stuff for Starcraft and it would do it overnight. Like in, in you know, the soak test is you just run it as long as possible to see if it fails and <clears throat> if it passes for 24 hours or something ridiculous, which no one is ever going to do, then you success. Um, and you find memory leaks that way, but in terms of, yeah, I think, I think human time and attention is better spent on creative tasks because the way that our neurons work, we, we make connections that AI and computers never, ever will because they're programmed and they do logical, you know, stuff, which is great for burn down charts and things like that. Um, and iterative testing, but not for finding the weird, crazy thing that no one would ever think to do. Um, so I hope so, because I think, I think that's where QA can be a creative sort of department in any studio and also a good sounding board for like, is this fun or not? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's one of those things that made uh, Blizzard a, such a, a special company for a long time. And uh, I don't know if it's still there <laughs> or being lost, but uh, ho- hopefully other studios follow that, that example from their early days. And mm-hmm. I have to say, like, I mean, I didn't really do it to the same degree, like look at the editor and look at the triggers and stuff like that. But just, you know, purely in like the map editor and the original um, Age of Empires' map editor, you know, spent hours in that and making custom games for, you know, custom maps rather just play with friends. And those type of scenarios is ideal as a type of a, you know, place where you're creating something that's fun to play. So you kind of realize what works and what doesn't because other people come in, they play your map and they're like, yeah, can you, can you change that? You know, can you add more units here? That type of environment is really cool. And that's something that, frankly, we have we have you and a lot of other great people at Blizzard and, and at um, at Microsoft Studios back in the day to thank for, you know, creating good map studios for people to play with, you know, making the game creation person of itself, that creativity. Yeah, I think that that's what's lacking in a lot of the, the modern games is that ability for players to go in and make their own scenarios. And there's a lot of companies that are trying to fill that gap. So there's, you know, Roblox and there's uh, Core and then there's, you know, I forget, but <clears throat> uh, like, but Roblox, for example, these aren't really user-friendly because you have to learn Lua scripting to yeah. make anything in Roblox, which I think is a little bit 
kind of a high bar. Whereas in the Warcraft three editor to this day, you know, you learn the trigger system and the trigger system is much easier and simpler than, than any sort of programming language or scripting system. Mm. Um, though we are seeing things like, you know, unreal has the, what do they call that? Reconnect the. Is, is, is the one where you, you create nodes and you create strings between them with uh, yeah. statements as a kind of like a graphical coding. Yeah, it's like graphical code. Yeah, so so I, I think Unreal sort of gone in that direction and, and others are, uh, I, I haven't looked at Unreal 5 yet, but I imagine they've simplified that, or at least I hope they have. Um, I've seen some demos of things that were pretty interesting. And, yeah, no, those uh, those are ideal. That's like kind of that's kind of like the level of entry level, um, you know, triggers and designs that you want people to get to know, get to know before they go into the deeper stuff. Especially, you know, separating a graphical interface with a text interface, just in terms of programming. I have some experience in programming, and I definitely know that's not quite as intuitive as you know some of the programming games that we used to play. That was lots of fun to start with it, but it's the same. It's the same exact concept. It just yeah. requires more more prep uh, from the well, developer side. People forget that you know, MOBAs as a whole came from. A Warcraft yeah. three trigger map uh, called Dota, and um, that, that's amazing to me that like an entire genre sort of came out of people experimenting in uh, in Warcraft three. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of the places. A lot of games also spawn out of uh, of Valve's CS:GO. You know, one point six exactly. ton of games spawn out of that. So that was really cool. I think no, sorry, actually, correction. That's a that's a chicken in the egg because CS:GO was also a Half Life mod, Fortress. wasn't it? Yeah. Or was it was a Team Force mod? Yeah. They they're yeah. built multiple iterations within each other from from allowing modders to to have free reign. But anyways, we've taken enough of your time. Thank you so much for talking to us. For everybody else, I can just recommend please check out Designer Dave on YouTube. He does amazing insights in the industry. And it'll I think it'll help a lot of people gain perspective on the stuff that they love. And if you're interested in that industry, it'll also give you an idea in terms of of the stuff that we've talked about today. So Dave, thank you so much. I just want to give you a last opportunity. Do you want to say anything, you know, plug anything, please by all means, floor's yours. Uh, yeah, go to my YouTube channel, join my Discord, ask me questions, because uh, that's basically what I'm here for. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not some highfalutin game designer hiding away, you know, just just ask me. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Yeah. No, definitely. And we recommend people do that. We'll put that link in the description for people to follow, easy to find. So definitely by all means do that. So Dave, thank you so much for joining. For those of you us, you know, thank you so much for watching for all this time. If you like what we do, we try to get a wide variety of perspectives. A lot of it's not gaming, unfortunately, but that's what I'm passionate about. So hopefully somebody else is about it too. So please check out, subscribe to the channel and, and support us in that way as well. Thank you so much for watching. This has been Worldview. Mm -hmm.